0: Welcome to the Mindfulness in Medicine podcast, a podcast about the role of mindfulness and related topics in medicine, created and produced by medical learners at McGill University.
1: Hi everyone and welcome to the Mindfulness in Medicine podcast. My name is Madison Legally, and today I'm joined by my fellow medical student Zoe O'Neill, as well as our guest speaker, Dr. Mark Sherman, a family physician and mindfulness teacher working in Victoria, B.C., he is also the creator of Living This Moment, which offers mindfulness and meditation workshops and, and courses for all ages. Today, we'll be discussing ways in which mindfulness can be incorporated into clinical practice, as well as the current culture of mindfulness in medicine. So hi, Dr. Sherman, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very excited to uh, to be part of this and that even this exists and that you guys are exploring this subject matter in medicine. I think it's extremely important.
0: We are so excited to have you. To begin with, can you tell us a little bit about your clinical training and how your career has come to be what it is today?
2: Yeah, so um, you are you are uh, located in my birthplace of Montreal and uh, my alma mater of McGill Medical School. Uh, so, I I think I was. Um, a young man that was always very interested in this kind of human condition both kind of as a body and you know therefore my interest in medicine and just kind of like mind and psychology and healing and so that certainly uh, drew me to study medicine which i did at mcgill uh, from 1994 to 1998 and um but it also kind of got me to explore other Um, healing modalities and disciplines as well. So kind of concurrent to medical school, you know, I did some epidemiological research in India and in Africa and was exposed to different healing systems and certainly was exposed a lot to yoga and meditation when I was doing my uh, research in India. And and sort of developed, you know, in my late teens and early 20s, uh, a personal meditation practice, uh, which I found was really insightful and wonderful for me personally. And then I had kind of medicine to the side and and studied medicine and was very, very passionate about that study and that practice through medical school and into my residency out here in BC and into my practice over the past number of years. And it really was probably in um, 2002, 2003, that I started to entertain this possibility of not just having these open discussions with patients that I felt comfortable with one-on-one, but starting to offer um, meditation instruction and uh, mindfulness-based stress management instruction to groups of patients. And that was in 2003 and uh, then that just grew from there and uh, into what became the British Columbia Association for Living Mindfully, which is a nonprofit organization that offers mindfulness-based stress management to about thousand people a year here in BC and on Vancouver Island. And then, you know, at some point in that journey, probably around 2014, I was asked um, increasingly to give talks to residents and medical students and nursing students and to doctors. And uh, that's how living this moment came to be what it was and has grown from there to be a place of of real passion because the discussion that has emerged, uh, the dialogue that has emerged amongst physicians when we talk about mindfulness and medicine is really powerful, very intimate and really addresses some key issues that we're facing.
0: So you spoke to us a little bit about how epidemiology and some research brought you to India and that influenced kind of the beginning of your your mindfulness journey. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and also what initially drew you to mindfulness as a young teen who was interested in philosophy and the mind?
2: I started a meditation practice in a very... um, basic way, probably when I was like 17 or 18, you know, maybe a little bit earlier, just dabbling and then started really practicing seriously, you know, in my early twenties, I would say. And, and since then. So I really think it's just this, this interest in the kind of mind body phenomenon that, um, that I think every physician, uh, who has practiced enough years with people kind of understands the link and, um, and it's really interesting to see the research coming out and catching up with I think what we've all understood in our experience, and that even this dialogue is becoming more and more welcomed in different circles that it was considered quite taboo or or alternative in the past
0: yeah I, I agree. I think it's very refreshing as a medical student to to even be able to have these kinds of conversations with physicians like yourself and it really is indicative of a kind of change of attitude uh, towards I, something that I think can be so useful and so important, um, p- particularly as a clinician. So I think it's useful for students and learners and medical learners alike to uh, kind of hear different definitions of mindfulness. Um, And so we're curious about how you define mindfulness. Perhaps maybe the definition that you give to patients even would be useful to hear.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I often use the practice of mindfulness as this kind of art of being present on purpose, without judgment in the present moment. And certainly it's a paraphrase of what John Kabat-Zinn of, uh, you know, famous for mindfulness-based stress reduction uses. But really mindfulness for me is about connection and um, connection to oneself and connection to our human condition, our common humanity. And you know, I think we, we often talk about two wings of mindfulness and the one being awareness and the, the second one being compassion. And I think they're both talking about connection because when we're connected to this moment, whatever it is, even if it ain't pretty, then we're more authentic to ourselves, more authentic to be here with our anger, to be here with our sadness or our pain, to be here with our joy, to be here with our fatigue, whatever might be here. So it's really connection to the moment and connection to this real sense of vulnerability and intimacy that we have for ourselves and that 's that first wing of mindfulness and awareness, and then the second wing of compassion is really that that ability to be connected to ourselves and as we explore our own mind and heart we 're exploring really this human condition because we 're not that different, and so this is the seed and really the foundation of compassion and so I think uh, physicians and healthcare professionals are really aware of this you know that are you know I think there's this wonderful saying by this medical historian and famous physician Francis Peabody, who said, um, the secret in the care of the patient is to care for the patient. And I really think that that's true. And I think anybody that's been doing this job for any number of years knows that, and that there's something very, very important. Yes, about our knowledge and our experience and our skill base, and all of that, of course. And yet it's about connection. And so, you know, I think mindfulness for me is about connection to oneself to other to this moment and to our common condition
0: i think that leads so nicely into the next idea that we wanted to discuss so when we think of family medicine um, we often think of longitudinal care the continuity of the patient relationship and, and prevention and these principles are actually well aligned it seems with the core concepts of mindfulness which is really about developing a deepened and different relationship with oneself and the process of learning about one's habits of mind for example as you kind of touched on so how do you think about the the interconnectedness between particularly family medicine and mindfulness and how do you think that they inform one another
2: yeah it's a great question Um, well, I mean, not to be redundant, but certainly I think connection, relationship and presence are so much a part of mindfulness and are so much the foundation of family medicine. Uh, you know, again, not to say that we don't need to learn our physiology and our biochemistry and our anatomy and no differential diagnoses and treatment plans and appropriate investigation. This is all crucial. But one of the biggest predictors of lifestyle change, whether it be helping somebody quit smoking or start to exercise or what have it, is the relationship and trust between the clinician and the patient. And so both through experience and the clinical research is really clear in this, relationship is a huge predictor of adherence to medication regimens or any other management to lifestyle change, et cetera. And when people are going through difficulty and, and really we're on the front lines of human suffering as, as clinicians and healthcare professionals, you know that relationship can be um, a life raft in the midst of a storm for patients with a new diagnosis of cancer or um, having to deal with the loss of a loved one or the breakup of a relationship. So this this capacity of connection with oneself and with other, this ability to form relationship through mutual vulnerability, which is the basis of intimacy and this ability to be present because we all know when we're present with another, even if we're on the phone, we don't have to be in each other's physical presence to know that if somebody's multitasking as they're on the phone with me, I know, I feel it. We all do. And it's not that it's bad or wrong. But there's something very connecting and therapeutic, no matter the type of human relationship, with presence. And I think mindfulness and meditation are really nothing more complex or mystical than this practice of being present and being awake in this moment with ourselves, whatever's here, and with this other person that we're with. And I think that that's how it interconnects and interrelates with family medicine, and I would argue with medicine in general. Even if we're a surgeon, there's still relationship, and that relationship's important.
0: I like that you mentioned that this isn't just family medicine where this is important, because I know we have a lot of colleagues who are interested in pursuing surgery and want to know how this will link into their future profession that might look very different from family medicine or other kinds of clinical contexts where mindfulness is often spoken about. So thank you for mentioning that.
2: Can I give you an anecdote that I think would be really useful? please um, Two conversations that have really emerged in Victorian on Vancouver Island recently is um, I was invited to participate with an organization called Rebalance, and Rebalance is kind of an orthopedic physical medicine triage conglomerate, if you will. It's where all of our orthopedic surgeons work and all of, most of our physiatrists work and there's a physiotherapist. So people that have to have joint replacements or having musculoskeletal issues often go to this one place. And it's a machine. They, they've they reduced their triage weight. People are getting joint replacements quicker and so forth. And what they've started to notice, and these are orthopedic surgeons and other physicians that work here, is they've noticed that When people have concurrent mental health, or addiction issues, or social issues, that their preparedness for surgery and their recovery and rehabilitation from surgery is significantly compromised. This leads to more visits, more complications, and ultimately you know, poorer outcomes for these patients and, and for the organization of rebalance. And so they're trying to develop a course that's based on mindfulness, meditation, and cognitive behavioral therapy, as well as lifestyle change, to give certain patients that we feel are at increased risk in order to improve their outcomes and improve their, um, their surgical outcomes, as well as you know, their life and their wellness. And so it's really interesting, you know, orthopedic surgery would not be the place we would think that meditation and mindfulness would generally land, but this was really initiated, not that they pretended to know how, and I think that that's when they were consulting other people, but they really recognized that this was a huge factor that were leading to poor outcomes in their patients and and more visits for them and more work. The second example that's really um, equally current in Victoria is we have a gastroenterology central access. So we have all of our gastroenterology that enterologists that work in one place. And they've been inundated and not able to address um, in a timely way many of the referrals because there's been so many referrals that have um, many layers of uh, mental health, And functional bowel disorders, et cetera, that have just been so voluminous, especially during the pandemic when stress levels have been much higher, that the gastroenterologists are now looking at developing a similar program that really looks at teaching and facilitating with their patients some measure of mindfulness and meditation and other wellness strategies in order to improve outcomes and in order to improve their ability to care for people that get referred with inflammatory bowel disease or you know other serious conditions and be able to see them in a more timely and efficient way so those are just two examples because i know a lot of medical students are like oh i'll study mindfulness if i'm going into family medicine otherwise not for me And you know, it's been really refreshing and so beautifully surprising to have these conversations with orthopods, physiatrists, gastroenterologists and others.
0: Thank you for sharing that. It is interesting and refreshing to hear those kinds of anecdotes from other areas of medicine. And I think it's really important for our colleagues to hear those kinds of things too. So we also discovered that you are writing a book about mindfulness in medicine, and we would love to hear a little bit more about the project and what kind of themes you're exploring, if you're able to speak to it.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I can speak to it because the book's been um, a project of mine for I would say probably three or four years, but mainly in here and in here. And now it's starting to get, you can't see, but my fingers are typing on keys right now in front of me. So, you know, I think it's its that process for a lot of us of um, taking something that we're really passionate and interested in and taking it from the ethers of idea to, uh, you know, more of the concrete realm of actually writing down, you know, an outline and how it's gonna flow out. So. It's really an opportunity to talk about some of my experience working with so many physicians over the years. And you know, just to add to our previous anecdote, these are physicians from all walks. These are not just family doctors, although there are many family doctors that are part of these workshops and retreats, but these are lots of eMERGE docs, uh, surgeons, internists, uh, public health specialists right across the board. So in that experience and having those dialogues about mindfulness and medicine and, and what that means and how that um, helps our wellness as well as our ability to care for others. You know, lots has come up and lots I've learned and grown so much from that experience and that conversation. So I think the book is really an opportunity to introduce mindfulness or reintroduce mindfulness to people that that think they got it figured out because I think we're all just trying to figure it out. Um, to talk about some of the clinical research because a lot of people don't realize that there is significant amount of clinical research, really good research on mindfulness in medicine, um, and that there's quite a bit of neuroscientific literature as well. So we introduce that in the book, um, certainly talk about the clinical research definitions and start to introduce the concept that hopefully we'll explore a little bit later of how do we practically, accessibly, in our busy, crazy, full lives of medicine, whatever it might be, how do we bring mindfulness into those realms in a way that serves us and doesn't just become another thing to do? And so I think that that's really the focus of the book.
0: That sounds like such a valuable endeavor and so important, uh, particularly with more and more research that's coming out every day about mindfulness. I th- It will be um, so valuable to have it concentrated in one place. Um, and I think you just provided the perfect transition because... Um, we really do want to talk about how mindfulness is finding its way into the workplace. It's not only in medicine, obviously, but that's where we will be uh, kind of focusing our, our attention. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: So my question is uh, for clinicians and trainees who are interested in having this mindfulness practice uh, built into their professional life, what would you say are some practical tips and tricks, um, especially considering we don't have that much exposure to mindfulness training in medical school?
2: Yeah, and, and um, you know, maybe we'll touch on this a little bit later as well, Maddie, but I, I do feel that um that's changing. You know, uh the the McGill Center for the Whole Person, um the Toronto Center for Mindfulness Studies, uh the Center for uh mindfulness at uh University of British Columbia Children's and Women's Hospital in Vancouver. I mean, increasingly we're starting to see you know, these big academic institutions and clinical institutions bringing mindfulness and meditation right into the fold, right into the center. So I think, you know, this is going to continue to change. But in answer to your question, you know, I think that mindfulness is like, um, I was going to say like an onion, but onions kind of make you cry and, and, and so forth. So I'll say like a rose, that they have many layers to them. And just like as a rose or a lotus kind of opens up and there's kind of more and more beauty, more and more complexity. I think the same is for mindfulness. And, you know, I, I think that mindfulness can be certainly understood and accessed in a very basic way by just understanding it as this practice of being awake and present in our lives. Because our our attention span is about three seconds. And if you're kind of looking for proof of that just watch your mind. Because as you try to focus on one thing, something else within about three seconds will come up. And so we're kind of awake, but we're like you know one of these mixers in a sound studio. We kind of have multiple tracks going on at the same time. We call it cognitive multitasking. And so we're, we're this this practice of being present just with this moment, not that multitasking so we can talk about multitasking. It's actually impossible. It's been proven as impossible by neuroscientists, but we think we multitask and focus on a lot of different things. And not that multiple things are important, but this ability to unitask, this ability to be present in what we're doing, lo and behold, the research says, allows us to increase our ability for focus, concentration, self-compassion, presence of mind, interoception, our ability to know what's going on with our own self. So it has a lot of benefits and these are trainable benefits. So I think when we talk about mindfulness in medicine, um, the first layer we talk about is, is learning to be present, learning to pause and really the most important part of that is remembering to pause. And so there's many ways that we can access that in our learning environment and in our clinical practice. And one of the simplest ones is um, creating little pauses, little sacred pauses, we call them, throughout our day. So we, in sometimes in our workshops, we talk about door handle meditation. So when we're moving from one patient to another, can we pause on the door handle and take a breath, one breath, and just feel the coolness or heat or whatever it is of that doorknob and then turn. And all we've done is we've created a little space between this moment and busyness and this one. Um, Viktor Frankl, a neuroscientist and psychologist survived the Holocaust of World War II and he was accredited to saying, between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in this space lies our power to choose our response and with this response lies our growth and our freedom. So we have a choice and with that choice comes in that space between stimulus and response. And so really honoring that choice through um, creating these little sacred pauses in our day. So door handle meditation, we talk, about, we talk about taking time outside or taking time at lunch to go outside and really um, decompress or go get some fresh air and so forth. We talk about creating space at the beginning of the day where before you get off your bike or get out of the car to take two minutes just to be with yourself, to check in. Where am I? What's going on in my body right now? What's going on in my mind? What am I feeling? And then leave the car and go into your learning environment, go into your first lecture, go into your clinical practice and see your face, first patient. And at the end of the day, before In that transition from work or learning environment to home can we pause in our car for two minutes or off of our bike for a couple of minutes or can we park a few blocks away and take a walk to our work or to home in order to again decompress and just take that sacred pause so i think that sacred pause and honoring the transitions of our life is really a first step and i think anybody can access that anywhere One of the things we often joke about with those sacred pauses is we say, you know, yes, mindful hand-washing, mindful uh, doorknob meditation, and we talk about mindful micturition. And that usually gets a few giggles amongst medical students and uh, physicians. But sometimes in a busy clinic, your pee break is the only break you have. So you might as well be present for it and take a breath. And take a pause, because it's here anyways, and you have to be there anyways. So it's really honoring those little pauses in our day so that we can be present. The second level of mindfulness is and learning mindfulness and accessing it is really recognizing that all of these skills that we practice in mindfulness, which are focus, attention, compassion, beginner's mind, curiosity, all of these things are trainable they're learnable. They're skills that, yeah, maybe you might have nurtured them earlier in your life. Maybe you might come upon them very naturally, but they are trainable skills. We can actually mold our minds and our brains. And neuroscientists have have spoken so much about this neuroplasticity. You can actually change the structure of the brain such that it could be noticed to have changed anatomically after an eight week course in mindfulness-based stress management. So just the fact that these are learnable, trainable skills kind of evokes a curiosity in people that are interested in bringing this into their practice. And then I think that, you know, the third level or the um, level that I think we explore with people that really notice how this benefits them personally and professionally is really learning meditation because meditation is our training ground where we really get to Um, explore that relationship with self and to explore our human condition at a deeper level and really to, you know, it's our training camp for all of these skills that I just mentioned.
1: No, I think that's excellent. I think it highlights um, many points such that, you know, even if you want to offer your patients um, a specific course in mindfulness, it really starts with your own curiosity and your own interest. And as you said, learning those sort of very basic trainable skills. and in terms of, though, introducing that idea of, of mindfulness to your patients as sort of a way, not necessarily to cure their disease, but to sort of remedy any stressors they might have and relieve some of their symptoms, how exactly do you, do you start that um, that conversation with patients?
2: Well, I think, you know, when I work with um, other physicians and medical residents and learners, which, which I do quite a bit over the years, I, I think... One of the things we really focus on is meeting your patient where they are, not where you think they should be and so some people will come in and be like, "Well, you know I've been practicing yoga and Tai Chi for fifty years, and I'm interested in meditation. Well, my conversation with them, and the wording is going to be very different than the person is that's like, "You know what's this meditation and mindfulness stuff? It sounds very Eastern and hokey and you know brainwashing and so the way that we present the skill and the practice might be different in wording but really not in practice so i think generally a way that most people can access is talking about from a neuroscientific perspective talking about the brain as something that's very trainable and so often one of the things that i'll say to patients when i'm working with them is That the area of the brain that controls fine motor movement of the thumbs has increased in size by about 30% over the past 20 years. And I asked them why. And of course they answer texting and video games and all these things. So that as we use our thumbs more, we actually grow that part of the brain and those neurosynaptic connections. The area of the brain that controls fine motor movement of the fingers is larger in master violin players than in people that don't play violin. The area of the brain that controls visual spatial orientation is larger in London cab drivers than in people that don't drive cab in London. So just the ability, which is really tantalizing for all of us who suffer you know, in our lives in different ways, to, ex- to develop this capacity for attention and self-compassion, and space and pause and relaxation and self-regulation and emotional literacy and all of these things, I think when we present it as something that's learnable and accessible to anybody because we have a brain and we have a mind and we have a will, I think that's the way I usually present it unless using kind of spiritual or religious language. Not that mindfulness and meditation don't have a lot of foundation in and aren't informed by those traditions, But I think when we present it in a more secular, non-denominational and even scientific manner, it's just more accessible to more people.
1: That's yeah, that's definitely true. And um, I was curious to know if you'd ever encountered um, sort of common misconceptions that patients might have about mindfulness and how you go about addressing those.
2: Yeah, well, I think I address them head on. because, you know, again, meeting our patients or meeting anybody where they are, not where we think they should be, is is kind of the basis of communication. Um, so, yeah, you know, patients will often think that mindfulness is Buddhist or Hindu, um, therefore it goes against their, you know, religious beliefs. They might think it's something that that person does, but not me, because you don't understand my brain is really busy. And so I think that, Um, Normalizing some of this common human experience, places of busy mind, places of self judgment and shame, um, really starting to frame mindfulness as, yes, as we just said, something that is definitely informed by spiritual traditions and has a long history, but is really something that's accessible to anybody that is involved in this human condition. And that it's a means of navigating the stressors and the suffering inherent in our life in a different way and so i i think that that usually allays most fears i think often the fears and misconceptions just come from having improper information about what this is and what it's not so saying that it does it's not necessarily a religious discipline or only accessible to certain people to say that it's not a quick fix that is not even appropriate for everyone. We certainly don't accept people into our eight-week program if they have, you know, a psychotic break or active addiction issues or, you know, flashbacks with post-traumatic stress disorder. It doesn't mean that those people might not be appropriate for such an intervention at a different point, but not when they're flailing in in that degree and acuity of suffering. No,
1: I think that's great. I think um, because you know, some patients, I, I can imagine. Um, might feel a bit uh, threatened by sort of this, this mindfulness practice as an alternative form of medicine, and it might have the uh, the risk of compromising that therapeutic alliance between physician and patient. So I think it's really essential to sort of figure out what their beliefs are and then address those in a sort of uh, a scientific way, but also just trying to get a feel for how, um, where their beliefs lie so that you can reestablish that connection with them. Mm-hmm. Um. And in terms of if, if we just move away from patient care for a minute, uh, we were curious to know a little bit more about your experience with mindfulness um, in the workplace, so among your colleagues, and what the future of mindfulness in medicine might look like.
2: I think it looks bright. Um, I think I know that physicians are looking for ways of navigating their own suffering, um, because this job that we're in, engaged with has some real challenges. You know, as we said before, we're on the front lines of human suffering. And as much as we think that there might be a therapeutic or professional distance, there's not, right? We have mirror neurons as much as any human does. And so we're constantly um, empathizing and feeling the suffering of another. Um, We're constantly dealing with you know uh counter transference and and these phenomena of of looking at somebody and you know them reminding us of our parent or our grandparent or our child and it's often these things are under the surface and so we suffer and then we're dealing with systematic challenges such as overwork and paperwork and electronic medical records and um, you know f- fee for service challenges and you know hierarchies in medicine and administrative realities. And um, so all of these different challenges can lead to a sense of uh, moral injury, which is a big term that's coming up more and more in medicine and wellness circles. This sense that this is what we really hope for and idealizes our practice of medicine. And this is re- the reality and there's a gap in there. And sometimes that leads to an injury of our moral compass. And then in addition, this, this kind of whole phenomenon of burnout which according to the Maslach Burnout Inventory, you know, and the Canadian Medical Association uh, Physician Wellness Survey, depending on the year, it's anywhere from 30 to 50 percent of all physicians in Canada are in some level of burnout. It's amazing when you look around a medical classroom, or when you look around a residency class, or when you look around a group of physicians, that, you know, in some studies showing half of us, and this is, The same in different countries all over the world are experiencing profound suffering of emotional exhaustion lack of efficacy you know and this can lead to marital disruption this can lead to suicide and depression rates which are much higher in physician populations than in the general population in canada um so you know without going into those areas too much of our physician suffering i think we feel it and we're starting to talk about it and so we're looking for ways and tools and skill sets to alleviate our own suffering and to take care of ourselves, even as we take care of of others, which is our job and our role. And I think when we do, when we recognize that mindfulness is a practice of wellness that might help us prevent burnout, that might help help us nurture self-compassion, that might help us um, grow our resilience and, when we're present and attentive, we make less medical errors. When we're present and attentive, we make the diagnosis properly. Some of the time, you know, nobody's perfect. When we're present and attentive, we're more likely to connect therapeutically, clinically, and personally to another human being that we just happen to be engaged with as patient or colleague because there's a huge disconnect amongst medical colleagues. Even though we work with each other, there's these hierarchies and power struggles that really are complicating um, this landscape of medicine and really leading to, I think, increased work stress, and sometimes, in some cases, poor patient uh, outcomes. So I think when we start to recognize that we're all human, And that we all suffer and we all have challenges, then we can start to create a culture that nurtures and supports ourselves and each other, even as we try to be the best physicians and caregivers that we can be. Because the other big epidemic that turns physicians and caregivers towards mindfulness and medicine is this um, culture in medicine that I think is changing in your generations. And I'm really happy to see it. But There's a certain sense of we're fine, we're strong, we don't get sick, we don't get stressed, we don't burn out. Even though the stats and the research is clearly telling us that we do, there's kind of this lack of ability to talk about our suffering in medicine. And that's a real big problem because then we suffer in silence. And that leads to some really tragic outcomes of addiction and um, premature retirement, uh, disability claims, um, and even suicide. And so I think our ability to become a little bit more vulnerable, you know, we say that there used to be a self-help book in the 80s called I'm Okay, You're Okay. And we joke that in medicine and in society, the new book should be I'm not okay, you're not okay, and that's okay. And if we kind of recognize and honor that not okayness. Not that there's not parts of us that are strong and resilient, but there's parts of us that are not okay. And we start to have those real human connections and conversations. That makes us stronger. That makes us better physicians. That makes us more present and engaged. That makes ourselves last longer in this profession and be able to do the job that we're trained to do.
0: Yeah, I think you've so beautifully described this this culture in medicine um, that can often kind of veer us away from from wellness. And um, I'm curious, what do you think the the current attitudes towards mindfulness practice amongst clinicians is? And do you think there's things that we can do as future clinicians and other practitioners can do to kind of cultivate um, cultivate and, and also promote the importance of mindfulness and its role in medicine?
2: I think, um, you know, we, we have a, an expression in mindfulness and in cognitive behavioral therapy that says, name it to tame it. And I think that in order to address this burnout crisis, this sense, this epidemic of moral injury that's leading to physicians prematurely retiring and people having lack of job satisfaction and lack of meaning in medicine. We have to name it. We have to name that there's there's suffering that's here. We have to be able to talk about it. Even at the medical school level, even at first year medical students or pre-med students, we have to be able to start talking about physician wellness and how we build resilience as human beings we need to start teaching our kids and our youth and our medical and other learners about how we take care of our body, yes, but how we take care of our mind. Because just as if we don't take care of our body with good sleep and diet and exercise and so forth, it, it defaults or imbalances into disease states. So does the mind. So learning, learning basic care of the mind and the body is something that we can all learn and we should all be bringing into our medical school curriculum and, and to have these honest conversations. Because if we have them at the medical school level and that's our foundation, we start to have these conversations about wellness alongside physiology and pathology and biochemistry and anatomy and all of this, then it's we're saying that it's equally important because all of the Harrison internal medicine texts and so forth Mean nothing if we are suffering to the point that we can't practice in a safe or effective way because we're consumed by our own pain. So I think when we start to have these conversations and start to learn about self care early on, start to learn about tools like mindfulness, not pretending that mindfulness is the only tool that we can use to build our resilience. But when we start to have these conversations and put them right up alongside with other core curriculum, that means that we evolve into the medical residents and physicians of whatever stripe. And we become human beings that know how to take care of ourselves and therefore can show up to take care of others in a different and better way. Whether that's our partner, whether that's our kids, whether that's our parents or siblings or friends, whether that's our patients.
0: So we're also curious, do you think you could speak to some of the literature and evidence about how mindfulness can be useful for medical practitioners and medical learners alike? Um, we're, we're curious about all of the knowledge and wisdom that you have in this area.
2: Well, I will, I will humbly say that I have some knowledge Maybe a a tiny ounce of wisdom, but it's burgeoning. Um, The evidence is quite clear on on depression and anxiety in humans in general. So there's, you know, a good study done in The Lancet a number of years ago that shows that, you know, um, after an eight-week course, relapse rates of depression were equivalent or perhaps slightly better in high-risk groups than people that were maintained on antidepressant medication. So we know that that it is another tool in our toolbox, mindfulness-based stress management and mindfulness-based interventions that help us. So all of that literature on depression and anxiety, on skin disorders, on um, uh, bowel disease, on chronic pain, apply to us as medical practitioners because we also happen to be human, even though sometimes we forget that in our practice. So I think that that's really important. Specific literature and evidence on... Physicians and um, medical learners is really interesting. So, it certainly has shown to decrease burnout. It's been, there was a really interesting study done, and I'm trying to remember the source, but I can get it for you another time so we can always post it if you want. But it was done on medical residents, I believe, in the States from a number of different institutions. So, they took a whole bunch of medical residents, I think it was pediatric residents, actually, and they did, um, I think, four self-evaluation scales. And these were all validated scales. They did a mindfulness scale. They did a uh, burnout scale. They did a self-compassion scale. And they did a stress scale. And so they just gave it to these residents and they said, okay, fill it out. And that'll kind of quantify how stressed you are, how self-compassionate you are, how mindful you are, and how burnt out you are. And what it really showed is that the higher that these residents scored on mindfulness translated to a 15 to 30% decrease rate of burnout. And every point scored on the self-compassion scale translated to dramatically decreased stress and dramatically decreased um, burnout. So just by developing this capacity of self-compassion, of caring for our own suffering, not pushing it away, not burrowing it down, but really caring and being present for ourselves as we would our, our most beloved is, is a really powerful skill. And we haven't really talked about that wing as much, but it's, it's so important and, and having some real education and some of the literature on mindfulness-based self-compassion is really compelling. So I would say that it's shown decreased burnout. It's shown uh, increased resilience. It's shown uh, decreased rates of depression and anxiety. It's shown that it has improved oral injury, although it's not the only thing that can. Obviously, we have to address some of the systemic real issues that that are at play. Um, And that it it, it has increased a sense of social cohesion in uh, medical communities, as well as a sense of meaning so there's, there's been some studies and some research that have really shown that people when they have training in mindfulness-based stress management, that they have just uh, less disability claims and, and a greater sense of meaning in the work that they do. So I, I think that these are all things that appeal to us, you know, less depression, less anxiety, less suicidality, less addiction, less burnout, um, better cohesion and, and social connection. You know, these are things that we long for as humans as well as clinicians. And I think that there's been some really good research, and this is a great end point to this question. There's been really good research that, lo and behold, it improves patient outcomes. And it was a great study, and I think that that's the bottom line. Yes, it inc- increases our, our ability to care for ourselves, and people might be on to that or not be on to that, But there is no doubt in the the literature that as we train in these disciplines, our patient outcomes are better. And there was a particular clinical study that showed that mental health care providers, not exclusively physicians, but including physicians, when they had training in mindfulness-based initiatives, their patient outcomes were significantly improved, not because they taught them anything about mindfulness or meditation, simply because they showed up differently and how we show up with our patients and with each other is really therapeutic or not. So I think that there's the studies that really show, you know, in education circles, teachers who have mindfulness-based stress management uh, skills having students with improved math outcomes, that we have better mental health outcomes in medicine, that we have better um, blood pressure outcomes and diabetes management outcomes. This is the kind of burgeoning research that's really exciting because it directly relates to unfortunate but realistic bottom lines that we we care about in, in health economics and so forth.
1: No, I think it's really incredible to see all this literature that's coming out, um, that has been for a couple years now, but it seems like uh, these days it's it's quite, um, it's, it's thriving. Um, and I think it, it makes sense, you know. Like intuitively, we know that this is true about mindfulness. <laughs> uh, but I think it's encouraging to have this literature, and it helps sort of support um, integration of mindfulness programs uh, into the system for, for both patients and for stu- and for uh, f- physicians and trainees. Um, and so, as we're coming to the end of our podcast, uh, we were just curious if maybe you could summarize. Um, we've spoken a lot about this, but sort of what would you say the goals of mindfulness are in medicine? Um, for patients and for physicians.
2: I think I would return, well, one thing I would say about research is if any of your listeners are interested in exploring more about research, the American Med- Mindfulness Research Association, AMRA, I think their website is go AMRA. is just a really great resource. It's an organization that just peruses the literature on mindfulness and kind of writes, um, keeps keeps us up to date. So it's a great place to look at what there might be. I think, in summary, I would I would go back to what I said initially on my definition, which is this is about connection to ourselves and to others, and it's about authenticity and being awake in our lives. Mindfulness is an art of living. It's an art of being alive, not in any necessarily mystical way. It's just being our full humanness, and not that we have to be perfect, not that we have to not feel like we fall down or make mistakes but it's a different way of relating to ourselves and others that's very wakeful, very present and very attentive and very compassionate and kind. And it's something that I think underneath the surface we all really yearn for. We all yearn for connection and it comes out in myriad ways in our society and in our lives. And sometimes it comes out in in difficult ways as we, we yearn for some sort of connection in our lives and we don't get it properly. So mindfulness is a way when we teach our kids and our youth and our learners and our physicians and other humans, these skills, it's a way of showing up in your life that's authentic and allows you to be fully you and to meet the blessings and the challenges of our life and of this beautiful work that we as medical providers are engaged with, with presence, compassion, and effectiveness.
1: Well, um, unless there's any other questions, Zoe, I I think uh, we'd like to really thank you for for sharing your your insight with us so eloquently. Um, And yeah, we thank you so much for this opportunity to
0: have this discussion with you.
2: Thank you, Maddie. Thank you, Zoe, for inviting me.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. So just quickly for those who might be interested in following the work that you're doing, how do you recommend that they do that?
2: Um, So people can contact me with with questions or if they're interested in any workshops or anything at um, at www.livingthismoment.ca or just mark at livingthismoment.ca. I'd be happy to welcome your questions and um, to welcome you to a workshop.
0: Okay, perfect. We will definitely put that website in the show notes as well for those listeners who are interested.
2: On that website and on the becombcalm.ca. Under resources, there's lots of guided meditations. Under resources, there's lots of research articles and so forth. So if people just want this, the, the website just to find out more information about this and to explore, you're welcome to as well.
0: Thank you so much for your time and for sharing with us today.